This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Welcome to season two of the STEM Read Podcast. Today we're talking about science fiction to fuel science fact. Our guests today are Dr. Joe Magliano, an educational psychologist, and Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis. So Jillian, we get asked a lot through STEM Read and as we go out into schools about why science fiction to teach STEM? We do get asked that a lot. And my first answer is, why not? Do you have a better idea? My my second answer is less confrontational. Um, no, I, I always look for that creative entry point, that spark to get people excited about reading and learning. So it always just made sense to me to use high interest, exciting books as an entry point for science. But it felt really good to start talking to an educational psychologist so we could get some more information on the research behind why it works. And he said, you're using science fiction as a scaffold to teach science fact. And we said, Of course we are. That's exactly what we're doing. (laughs) So uh, we wanted to bring him into the studio to talk a little bit more about his research and some of the exciting ways that science fiction can be used and also some of the potential pitfalls that could come about. Kristen, do you remember what some of those pitfalls were? Seductive details. Seductive details. It sounds very exciting. I want to do a whole podcast called Seductive. (laughs) Shh. Sit tight. Seductive details. So it sounds like a really good podcast, but it's um, it's a danger, it turns out, for teaching science fiction and science fact. So we'll explore that with Dr. Joe Magliano, and then we will hear from Andy Weir. Kristen, have you ever been stranded on Mars? Uh, no. No, I have not. I have in my imagination. Uh-huh. But not for real. Not for real? Not for real. <laughs> Was there ever a time you felt like you were stranded on Mars? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quite often. <laughs> right Deserted. <now>. Alone. <laughs> Every time we come in to record... <laughs> Andy Where's the Martian is a book that we've uh, used for quite a few years for everything from first aid to engineering to space exploration to potatoes. Having students design a habitat that's airtight using plastic bags and cardboard and tape. Martian math, looking at how could we communicate without language, visual ways that we could communicate if we were stranded on Mars and had no way to talk to the people on Earth. There, I mean, there's a lot of things I love about The Martian and Artemis. One of the things that I love is that they're funny. I, I love the voice of the characters that Andy Weir creates and just the way that he can talk about everything from rebuilding his hab to blowing himself up that just makes you want to read it, want to see the math that he's doing, want to figure out how he's going to science his way out of different problems. We had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Andy Weir over the summer. We brought him to the International Society Society for Technology and Education Conference in Chicago, 
And we did several activities with him at the conference and also at Argonne National Lab. So what you're going to be hearing is an excerpt from our talk, Future Telling, from Argonne National Lab. But first, let's hear about those seductive details and narrative scaffoldings for teaching science. Here's our interview with Dr. Joe Magliano. My name is Joe Magliano. I'm a psychology professor. I'm a cognitive scientist, and I study how we make sense of media, text, comic books, film. And I do basic research on cognitive processes that support comprehension with a particular interest in narrative. As I kind of read through some of the educator blogs and everything lately, I've noticed there's been more people are writing about this connection between storytelling and learning. Why is it important? You know, this interest in storytelling and in learning, there may be an uptick of interest in that, but it's very old. Uh, you know, it can uh, it dates back to Aristotle. He, he made this connection between stories and learning. I think Aristotle's observation and uh, this uh, interest stems from the fact that Narratives and how they're structured is connected to how we understand and make sense of the real world. Narratives are cross-cultural experience. The act of telling stories has been around for a while, and there's some speculation. You know, narratives uh, were a primary way of communicating information in pre-literate eras of, uh, of, of us as a species. There's a, a lot of social elements built into narratives that mirror our real-world experience experiences, but are vicarious in nature. You know, we, we don't experience the same trials and tribulations that uh, make life sometimes a slog fest. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's always better with a story, right? <laughs> what connections are you seeing between storytelling, our narratives, and learning? They've been a part of it for a while. You know, I, I got my PhD in 92, and around that time, there was the origins of, of something called situated learning, where you sort of ground usually STEM content in real world situations. And the intent there was to uh, facilitate transfer out of the classroom. A big problem is you learn, with, in particular with STEM learning, is you learn this content and you know, it stays in that, that building. And uh, the idea was that situated learning would help convey that STEM content can be applied to solving real-world problems. And again, the idea is that you, uh, the narrative is a kind of a scaffold for learning complex content because it's more aligned with how we think. That always made sense to me when, for math, for some reason, story problems resonated more with me because it would make sense why you were trying to use that formula. There was a reason why you were solving the problems. Mm -hmm. and, and, and setting that up in such a way that it really facilitates learning rather than distracts uh, learning and problem solving is, is a real challenge. Uh, you know, a real challenge with... Um, traditional word problems for students is the narrative content pulls their attention away from the uh, math content. Now, mm -hmm. I, I don't study math learning, right. but I do know that one of the strategies to dealing with these uh, you know, word problems was to, to help the kids just sort of isolate what the math problem mm -hmm. was, which kind of takes away the whole point of embedding the math content in, in a narrative. So doing that is, is something I think is still trying to be figured out. You get hung up on that story. Why on earth does Jimmy have 500 pies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why is that? I don't care. 
how many he's going to lose. I need to know what Jimmy's doing. Yeah. Why did the people get on that train? Yeah. Exactly. So th- this, there's a term we use in learning science is called uh, seductive details. Seductive details are information that's put into a learning situation that's entirely intended to engender interest, but that becomes what people gravitate towards. So there are other examples you can think of where storytelling has come or narrative in general has come out of the English language arts classroom and into STEM or a different classroom that has been successful or that has not worked well. When I've learned about the stuff that you guys are doing and and STEM and and Steamworks, to me is intended to engender excitement about STEM. It's it's like a gateway to uh, STEM learning. And you have these uh, really neat uh, events that are using, utilizing kids' love for narrative uh, to illustrate that there are higher-order scientific concepts, really high-level scientific aspects of, of engaging with science that can be explored in these books. You're not, in, in those interventions, at least the ones I've seen, not embedding science content. It's, it's, it's outcome. I, I want to give a nod to IES, the Institute for Education Sciences. It's the R&D wing of the U.S. Department of Education. And they've produced this What Works Clearinghouse, which is a collection of what they've learned from their funded projects, best practices, that is actually written for practitioners because they're concerned about this issue. The most important thing, I think, uh, when you start out is to understand what your outcomes are. I think uh, a good recommendation for any practitioner is as you move into this world, uh, to make be very clear about what you're trying to achieve by in, embedding narrative in the classroom. And uh, the other uh, thing I think you need to be aware of is seductive details, that uh, you, you need to make sure that you're not masking the content you're trying to teach with a really great narrative. You know, I think narrative is really good at engendering interest, and it's really good at communicating engendering and maintaining interest, and it's really good at uh, helping uh, people understand how to apply knowledge. And uh, have the science content be linked to main characters of the story, because uh, we are, you know, we closely follow the main characters of stories, what's going on with them, what, you know, what they care about, why they're doing what they're doing. Don't have it be a periphery to the story. If you have it be periphery to the story, that's when Uh, the seductive details of the narrative can overwhelm it. You're going to care more about what's happening with this character. Well, I think if you look at books like The Martian, he kind (laughs) of took that out of the equation. You didn't know Mark Watney's backstory to a certain extent. You know that he had parents. You don't really know what their relationship was like. You didn't know if he was married, if he had a girlfriend, whatever it might be. You knew that he's got a science's way off of Mars, and he's going to do that. I have no idea the veracity of the science, uh, that was in there. I don't remember much of it, but I do remember <laughs> that he had to science his way off of Mars. Now, mm-hmm. what you think about, now that's a, he's a writer, then maybe that, I, I suspect that that's what he wanted to do. You know, he's, I don't, he, I think he probably wanted to tell a good story, but he probably also mm-hmm. wanted to be an advocate for science. That was a big, that was a big outcome. And I think that was the story that was, that was the story that was communicated. Right. And a scientist can be a hero and can use their brain to solve problems, Mm. but don't learn about astrophysics and engineering from the Martian, get excited about it, and then go learn the real science. Uh, That's exactly right. And my guess is that's what he wanted, you know, to do. To go back to those 
what if questions or the, I didn't know that was possible. What if you were on Mars and you needed to grow food? How, how yeah. would you do it? It starts generating those questions and right. building your curiosity so you want to learn more and it directs you into the path of learning. You just heard our interview with Dr. Joe Magliano, educational psychologist. Kristen, seductive details. <laughs> seductive details. <laughs> No, I, th- I thought that was really interesting, um, an interesting idea about how you can use storytelling as a way to get kids excited about science, but you need to be careful that you don't put so much emphasis on the story that you steamroll the science concepts that you wanted to teach. Or make sure that the science concepts are connected to the main characters, not side stories. So it's easier for us to connect with those main characters and what they're going through and thus paying more attention to the science or the engineering that they're experiencing, where if it's just kind of a side story, you're going to not really pay much attention to it. So Joe was definitely speaking our language when he talked about narrative being great for engendering interest and communicating knowledge. I like how he said that story is an advocate for science. That it can inspire curiosity. And I think we see that all the time when we work with students in the STEM STEM read program. So if you're thinking about looking for ways to use narratives or fun fiction books to teach science, think about how the narrative can be a jumping off point for the science that you want to teach. And if you're teaching science or STEM and you are looking to make things maybe more exciting or reach some of those kids who haven't found that entry point into your subject, consider using an exciting narrative as a way to enhance what you're already doing. I think it's safe to say that we've wanted to have Andy Weir on the podcast for quite a while. We interviewed him after The Martian had come out, but before the movie had come out because we were that kind of cool. It was, it was really exciting to get to hang out with him quite a bit. I was kind of his native guide to the Midwest and, you know, led him through uh, the ISTE conference and through Chicago. We went bowling with him at Burnt City Brewing. I was in Chicago traffic with him in an Uber with him. You know, we spent a lot of time together. And one of my favorite things about hanging out with Andy Weir was his curiosity. He was always asking questions and trying to figure out how things worked. Yeah, I remember when we were in the elevator together, and it was one of those kind of high-tech elevators that had pictures moving on the walls and video playing, and he spent the whole ride up to the 12th floor trying to figure out how they did it. Where was the camera? How was it projected? Right. And it wasn't just technology. He was curious about people. So even in the Uber, he was he was sitting in the passenger side seat with, next to the Uber driver, asking him about the history of the city, the architecture of the city, what it was like being an Uber driver, why he had this, um, this special headrest on his passenger side seat, and, and being genuinely interested in the answers. So that curiosity, really, you could see that come through in his writing, too. You know, you can imagine him at his keyboard going, I, I wonder what would happen if someone was stranded on Mars? What would happen if there was a city on the moon? What would it be? What would its economy be like? What kind of person would live there year round? And I love that. That goes back to some of the 
other authors that we've talked to about asking what if. But it also has an interesting bridge into this idea of future telling that we've talked about with Argonne National Lab. The scientists at Argonne are doing a lot of research that will lead to advances in the next 10 to 30 to 40 years. You know, when when they're doing this research, they are actually asking themselves the same kind of questions. What do I want Earth to look like 20, 30 years from now? What are we going to do about our energy crisis? What will fuel the future of our society? And then they have to do the research and do the science, do the engineering to actually bring that future to pass. In this interview that you're going to hear, we recorded it live at Argonne National Lab. And we will explore the ideas of Andy Weir's writing, his creativity, and also the idea of the connections between science, science fiction, and future telling. Here's our interview with Andy Weir. I want to get started. One of the things we like to do at STEM Read is hear people's origin stories. Like superheroes always have great origin stories, right? But it turns out that authors and scientists and researchers do too. So what were you like as a student and the age of some of the students that are here in the room with us? Well, I was a straight-A student in high school, but I was also like a disruptive influence in my class. I was not very well-behaved. I was often pretty bored. Uh, the work wasn't very hard, and so I'd finish early, and I was I was kind of a pain in the butt. And most of my teachers were like, you know, you're a good student, but uh. and so I could be a handful. I was kind of a spaz. I, I, I calmed down a little bit toward the later years of high school, but um, yeah, I also got beat up a lot by other kids. And looking back, I earned every butt kicking I received because I'm a bit of a smart aleck. So you've said that one of the things you did to keep busy when you were bored in class was fan fiction. So what kind of fan fiction were you writing? When I was a little, little kid, I started off by writing Beverly Cleary fan fiction, like Henry and Ribsy and Beezus and Ramona and stuff like that. I, that's when I was like six or seven. Later on, though, I got into writing my own short stories as, when I was a tween and then as, as a teen, also short stories and halting beginnings of books and whatnot. Nowadays, I mean, I still write fan fiction. <laughs> Even after The Martian came out, I wrote fan fiction for Ready Player One. And it's canon, right? It's canon. It got canonized. <laughs> That's the dream of every fan fiction author is to have the original source author say that your fan fiction is canon. And that happened to me. Everything else has just been leading up to that moment. <laughs> Thank, yes, you. Thank so, you. So The Martian was, was good. That it was, was a, a good step run, along but... the journey Ready to Player having one a canonized Ready Player One fan fiction. That was the peak. Yes. It's all downhill from there. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> all right. So you also had an internship at a national lab like this one. Yes. Sandia National Labs in Livermore. I was an intern there from age 15 to 18 on kind of a work program. They would, uh, they, they'd hire local teens from the, uh, you know, from, from the community to come in and be like lab assistants, you know, clean test tubes, that sort of stuff. Oftentimes people hear, you worked, you know, you worked for a national lab when you were 15. You must be some sort of child genius. I'm like, no, I was just the guy who answered the ad. <laughs> I mean, you know, you had to be a good student to qualify and stuff like that. And that was a real good experience for me. It's what taught me the beginnings of my software engineering career. Because the lab I worked for was called the Combustion Research Facility, and they did research on low-pollution fuels or lower-pollution fuels. I mean, it was the 80s, so 
if you weren't actually burning great horned owls in your engine, you were considered a ecologically sound. You know, so we were working on that stuff, and they had just disks and disks full of data that they needed analyzed, or they needed math run on all these numbers. And this was before the days of Excel. And so they're like, well, we want you to write software that does math to big piles of numbers. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. But I don't know how to program computers. And they're like, well, there's a computer. Here's a book on how to program computers. Let us know when you're ready to start doing useful stuff. And that began a 25-year career in software engineering for me. I did computer programming right up until 2014 when I then, then I went full-time on the writing. So 2014 was the last time I did honest work. So in a lot of your books, there are complicated problems that the characters have to solve, and, and they kind of compound themselves. One problem leads to the next problem. When you think you've solved something, five other things break. One of the things that the main character, Jazz, her father always says to her in Artemis is, work it out. And she always gets frustrated, and she has to look at things and then work them out for herself. She doesn't get the easy answers. So why do your characters have to go through this struggle for answers or for problem solving? Because I'm an evil, vengeful god. Uh -huh. No, I like problem solving. You should always write a story that you yourself would enjoy reading. So, I mean, that's kind of the one canonical rule all authors should follow. If you wouldn't even like it, then you can't expect your readers to like it. And what I enjoy, this is shared by many, many readers, is when the author outwits me. So when, like, I have been given all the information I need to figure out what the main character has to do, but I can't figure it out, but the main character does. And then looking back at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that all makes sense. I got outsmarted. The main character is smarter than me. That feels good. And the proof that uh, people love that. People love being outsmarted by the characters in the books that they're reading. And the proof of that is the enormous popularity of murder mystery books. The whole point of a murder mystery book is you have been given all the information you need to solve the mystery. And you usually, you don't. But then the detective does. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course. Ah, I got all this People love that. So for problem solving, that's what I like to do for, for The Martian and Artemis. Both of it is like the protagonist is presented with problems, and you know everything that they know, but then they solve the problem, hopefully in a way that you're like, hmm, didn't see that coming. Ah, yeah, excellent. So why do you like to incorporate real science facts? Why do you have to get the details right or have to put in that level of detail? Well, when I was writing The Martian, I was posting it a chapter at a time to my website. And I had accumulated over the previous 10 years about 3,000 regular readers to my site. I was just like, I would post short fiction or little comics or whatever. And 3,000 readers sounds like a pretty good accomplishment, but 10 years is a long time. It was just an email list, but those readers were hardcore science dorks such as myself, and I'd learned that they cared a lot about scientific accuracy, so I was really writing The Martian for them. I wrote it for what I believed would be just a teeny, teeny, itty-bitty niche audience of people, and that it would have no mainstream appeal, but I didn't care. I was just writing it for them and for me, because that's the sort of stuff I like too. Then it you know, blew up and got really, really popular. And I still, I was just really surprised that mainstream audiences were interested in what is basically a series of algebra problems, right? But I guess what happened was people who aren't as interested in the math, aren't as interested in the science, they'd read it and then they'd just kind of like, when it started getting into the deep technical description, they'd just kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. They'd gloss over it or skim it until it got to something else, which is actually like a huge accomplishment that I wish I knew how to do on purpose, 
which is the reader implicitly and 100% trusted me to be accurate. They just had 100% confidence with no suspension of disbelief that what I was saying in those paragraphs was true and that they could just skim it. If you establish that level of trust between you and your reader, you're in good shape for telling a narrative. I didn't do any of this on purpose. It just ended up that way. So that leads into my next question a little bit about what you do and do not do on purpose when you're writing. So in writing, do you want to talk about the idea of plotters and pantsers and explain <laughs> which one you think you might be? The idea of plotting and pantsing is there's really kind of two kinds of writers. There are plotters who figure out everything that's going to happen in the story and then write it. And then there's pantsers, and they just make stuff up as they go along, like see where the story takes them. I'm definitely more of a plotter. So I generally know how a story is going to end before I even write the first sentence. But I don't necessarily know how it's going to get there. So I'll have an idea of like, oh, this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. But once I start writing that first thing, I'm like, oh, this would be way cooler. And so it you know, bounces around. But I'm definitely a plotter. <laughs> and a pantser is you fly by the seat of your pants. Yes, that's what, flying by the seat <laughs> of your pants. That's where that comes from. A good example is George R.R. R. Martin is famously a pantser. He just doesn't know how a book is going to end when he's starting it. Just things happen, which means that when you're reading it, you honestly have no idea what's going to happen because he really didn't either. And that's good. It means that you are constantly on your toes and you don't see the twists and turns coming. So that works really well for him. But for me, I'm a, I'm a scientific guy. I'm a software engineer at heart. I need to have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> so how is software development like writing? Or is it like writing? Well, it is a little bit in that software development is all about taking a large problem, breaking it up into smaller problems, then breaking them up into smaller tasks, and then just kind of getting them done. Writing is like that. I'm like, here's the main arc that of things I want to have happen in a story. Well, here are the sequence of plot turns and twists that I need to have happen. Okay, now I need to write each one. So kind of from a project management standpoint, it's similar. And I love problem solving. So my particular brand of storytelling has tons and tons of problem solving, and so does programming. What is different, though, is actually this was the hardest transition for me, was I'm a pretty social guy. I like chatting with people. I like talking to people. I like hanging out with folks. So first off, I loved software engineering. It was a career that I really enjoyed. I would have been perfectly happy just being a software engineer for the rest of my career. That would have really worked for me. And I really liked being part of a team. I liked going into work in the morning and saying, like, hey, Steve, I heard your dog was sick last time we talked. Is he better now? Or, oh, hey, how was your vacation to Lake Tahoe? You know, and just like having coffee with your team before we get to the work of the day. And then we're all working together for a common goal. We have this objective that we're trying to reach. We're breaking it up into chunks. Oh, this guy's the expert on that part of the source code. This guy's the expert on that part. We need to work together to redesign this and so on. It was really fun for me and I really enjoyed that teamwork element. And leaving software to be a writer was a big change for me because now I'm, and now I'm just alone. I'm in my office by myself. And that's kind of rough for an extroverted guy like me. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm sitting in a dank basement with a flickering fluorescent light and some strange water dripping sound in the background. <laughs> it's not like that. I, I live with my fiance, but she's also a writer. So she's 
off in her dank basement <laughs> with flickering light, you know, doing her own thing. And we're not collaborating on any projects. So that was a big transition for me. And you know, I've lost that element of the workday and I really miss it. But somehow I think not a lot of people are going to feel sorry for me. I think that there's not going to be uh, yeah, a lot of weeping for me on that. So I think that, you know, students and, and sometimes adults, you think you get this book and it just kind of magically appears at the library or at your bookstore and then you read it. But one of the things we're really interested in STEM read is the idea of persistence and productive struggle. And I think that one of the things that writing can do, it can really give you a good everyday example of productive struggle, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the hardest part of writing is writing. Coming up with stories is easy. Whatever you do, it's probably pretty easy for you to imagine doing interesting stuff. So coming up with the ideas is easy, but sitting down and typing into your word processor, that's the effort. That's the hard part. I never have writer's block. I'm never confused about what to do next with the story. Sometimes I have to choose between one of a few different options I have in mind, but I'm never just like stuck or stumped. I do, however, often run into writer's laziness or whatever you want to call it, where I just can't motivate myself, or as my stepdad calls it, transmission problems. You can't get your ass in gear. So to deal with that, I try to set myself goals of like, okay, I'm, I want to write 5,000 words a week, which is, means I want to average 1,000 words every workday, and I can relax on the weekends and stuff like that. So that's my goal. And I would also say like, okay, by the end of Monday, I have to have a thousand words written. By the end of Tuesday, I have to have 2,000 words and so on. And then I deny myself things I like to do until I've made my words. That's what I call it. I've made my words today. I'm not allowed to watch any YouTube videos or TV until I've made my words. I'm not allowed to do any woodworking until I've made my words. That's my hobby is woodworking. I've got the whole garage turned into a woodworking shop. I've got a laser cutter. It's awesome. I'm not allowed, quote unquote, to do any of that. And it's sometimes it's hard to enforce, although having my fiance in the house helps because she'll crack the whip. She's like, did you, did you finish your words? Did you do that? What are you doing? You watching a YouTube video? Why? Why are you watching a YouTube video? You haven't finished your words, have you? Have you? And then you would distract her from her writing probably. Well, yeah, I'm also like, hey, what are you doing? Where, where, where are you headed out there? Yeah, uh, you, you finish your words today? Yeah. But she's actually way more disciplined than I am, so. I want to talk about failure now. Oh. Okay, let's <laughs> do you, that. You know, you were you were an overnight success with yes, the Martian, 20 right? Twenty years in the making. Right. So it was yes. so easy, right? So yes. <laughs> but writers, you know, they fail sentence by sentence, sometimes word by word, or year after year. And so how do you keep yourself motivated? What did your path towards writing, maybe you could tell people about your path to the Martian and what it has taught you about failure? Well, with any skill, writing is a skill just like any other. And basically, when you first start at it, you're going to suck. And the more you do it, the less you suck. And eventually, you start to get good at it. And so the Martian, most people don't know this, is my third book. The first two sucked, and they weren't published, and rightly so. So it was just a lot of work. The first one, I knew it sucked, so I didn't try to show it to anybody. I didn't try to get it published. Uh, fortunately, thank God, I wrote it before the era of the internet, because at the time, I, of course, would have proudly posted it online, but fortunately, no one will ever see that. My second one, I think, was actually a pretty solid story idea, um, but just poorly executed. And on that second one, I had actually took a three-year sabbatical from my career 
to focus on writing that book and trying to get it published. Um, I'd come into some money through stock options from being laid off, which is how the tech industry works. <laughs> and so I took three years and tried to write a novel and break into the industry and failed. You know, it was the same tale of woe that every writer can tell you. It's like no interest from agents, no interest from publishers, just no traction whatsoever. So I went back into the tech industry. But as I said, I like tech. So this wasn't a sad Charlie Brown music, hang your head situation. It was just me saying like, well, I attempted to follow my dream, didn't pan out. Now we'll go back to a career that I enjoy. So it wasn't that bad. On the topic of failure, I like to tell people about this. I wrote almost an entire book between The Martian and Artemis. After The Martian's success, I got immediately another contract with Random House to write my next book, which was going to be called Zhek, Z-H-E-K. And it was a big, epic tale. It was like monumental in scale. It had aliens. It had faster than light travel. It had telepathy. It had all this stuff. It was definitely a soft sci-fi book, not my hard sci-fi normal. They gave me a year to write it. And in that year, I got 70,000 words in. For reference, The Martian, the whole book is about 105,000 words. So this is about 70% the length of The Martian is what I've written into it. And one day I was reading it and I said, oh dear, this sucks. And it did. And I was like, Oh God, like the plot's going nowhere. I'm still in the first act. This is going to be some 600 page tome that nobody's going to want to read. The characters aren't that interesting. I'm having a really tough time with this. I can't figure out how to pare it down. It's just too massive in scale, the plot is. So I called my editor and I said like, hey, you know that book that I'm supposed to be writing right now? could I maybe instead throw it away entirely, write an entirely different book and have you add a year onto my deadline? And they said, yeah, sure, no problem. Because they'd been reading the chapters of Jack. So it's just a little lesson for everybody, even after what is, I mean, The Martian is probably going to be the biggest success of my life, professional success anyway. It's going to be pretty hard to top that. I could write 20 more books and people will probably still say, yeah, but The Martian is his best book. And that's fine. I've kind of made my peace with that. <laughs> but just even coming off that immediate massive success, you can still just fail right away. <laughs> so that risk never goes away. I'm not just coasting from now on. And in fact, after Artemis, Artemis was also pretty successful. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was Audible's highest selling audiobook. So it really did well, right? But even then, I went to Random House after that and said, like, hey, I got an idea for a sequel to Artemis. And they're like, great, let's hear it. And I pitched it to them, and they're like, nah, no thanks. There's no free ride. You just have to keep working hard. Still failing after all still these failing. years. Still failing. Still <laughs> failing. I still I still remember how to fail. Haven't lost that knack. <laughs> but still persisting, right? Still persisting, though. Right. Try, trying my hardest. <laughs> yeah. So we're here to talk about future telling as well. So imagining what the future might be like and what the potential is for humanity, for technology and things like that. So your books have a very positive outlook of the future and they're, they're not your dystopian sci-fi. And right. why, do you, why do you choose to tell stories like that? Well, at my core, I am an optimistic person. And I really do have a lot more faith in humanity than most people do. And I really think that as time goes forward, the quality of life for humanity and just the world in general becomes a better place. And if you don't believe me, I would ask any of you to think, would you rather be alive now or 100 years ago? 
most of you would pick now. If I said, okay, instead of that, you can be any multiple of 100 years ago. You can go to 1918, 1818, 1718, but you cannot stay here. You have to go back at least 100 years. Most of you would like think about it for a while and then choose 1918. Any given year is always better than the one from 100 years earlier. Now, in the short term, that's not always the case. You'd probably rather be in 1923 than 1943, but you would much rather be in 2023 than 1923. And if you ask people from 2118 whether they'd rather be there or come back here, they'd want to stay in 2118. I honestly believe that the world just keeps continuing to get a better place because, first off, our science and technology makes it better, and second off, we advance socially and our societies advance in ways that would be considered unthinkable you know, centuries ago. So to that end, I have a pretty optimistic view of the future, and I really don't like dystopian sci-fi. I feel like the whole science fiction market has been hijacked by stories about fascist misery scapes that can only be rescued by a small group of teenagers doing some weird shit, like <laughs> archery or running through a maze or something like that. And I don't buy into that future. And I have five to 10,000 years of humans' societal progress to point to to back me up. So my stories are optimistic. They're, the Martian is everybody versus nature. It's like all of humanity versus nature. Artemis is people versus people, but there's also this cool and interesting future where we're colonizing the moon and there's neat stuff going on. Different authors have different ways of engaging the reader and trying to pull them into the book. What I try to do is I say, I want the reader, when they're reading one of my books, to say like, man, I wish I lived in that world. I wish I lived there. Nobody wishes they lived in Westeros, right? Game of Thrones. Nobody wants to live there. You don't want to live there. It's really exciting. It's really interesting. But that's not how George pulls people into the stories. People don't want to live there. But I think people would like to live in my world. And I think one of the best examples of sci-fi done the way that I like, the optimistic future style, is uh, Star Trek. I think Star Trek is a very optimistic view of the future. It would be wonderful to live on Earth in the Star Trek setting. Earth is just awesome. All the weird crap that's dangerous happens way out on the borders of the Federation. You know, that's not your problem. I'm just sitting here with my absolutely no problems. They've solved poverty and hunger and disease, and everybody's just happy all the time. And every time you see Earth, it's looking great. <laughs> okay, there's the occasional Borg attack or whatever. Point is, it's pretty cool. So I guess uh, I'm just an optimistic guy. So you had a chance to explore some labs. Was yes. your was your creative Their labs, brain? Yes. Basically. <laughs> These awesome. labs in particular. Were you getting some idea sparks as you uh, walked through? Everybody asks me that. Everybody's like, hey, do you see anything, any ideas for a novel in here? And the thing is, when I learn something new, it takes a while for it to percolate and hang out in my brain for a while before I come up with a story. I don't come up with anything immediately. But I will say that I had a great time looking at your labs. They had to kind of like, okay, Andy, my wrangler here had to go, come on. It's time for you to go on to the other thing. I'm like, wait, I just have, I, I need to know more about, you know. So, you know, for him, I was asking, well, why do you use aluminum as a substrate? Why don't you use, you know, other things? <laughs> and for her, I'm like, what keeps you from mining bitcoins in your supercomputer? Would you, I mean, would you get caught? You wouldn't get caught. You know what you're doing. <laughs> you could hide it and you, you could retire on it. And I asked him why he hasn't made his wife a big diamond yet, because... This is what he does, is he makes diamonds. Just grow it in layers. Make it like in the shape of her initials or something. You could do it. 
You're welcome. And so, I mean, yeah, I get all sorts of silly ideas like that. Well, in fact, the uh, using a supercomputer bank to mine bitcoins is not new. A bunch of Russians got caught doing it. What earlier this year in Russia, you know, one of their NSA equivalent top secret whatever, where they simulate nuclear explosions type of things, <laughs> they're mining bitcoins. <laughs> and also remember, like um, since we're, the subject is partially here, failure. Um, some of the greatest scientific successes of all time have been failures. Like Michelson Morley trying to prove there was an ether, accidentally proved there was not an ether. And they kind of like feel like, oh, we screwed it up. How did we, why, what are we missing here? What you're missing is there's no ether. <laughs> and, and so it was, it was, it's, but it was, you know, one of the most important experiments in, in the history of like understanding light. Um, one thing that for me, like, they're scientists, so when they don't understand something, they're like, I am going to try to figure this out, or I'm going to conduct an experiment to try to learn more about it, or I'm going to talk to a colleague who does know about it, or whatever. They, they're on the edge of what is human knowledge, and what is beyond is, all, is unknown to everything. So this is their whole job. For me, when I'm just a writer, and so I just need to come up with scenarios, and, and so I end up doing a lot of research because I want things to be scientifically accurate. On rare occasions, I will go down the rabbit hole on some made-up technology of mine to the point where I run into the frontier of science. And it really pisses me off because I can't just find out what the answer is anymore. One time I was doing this thing where I was, I was working on, um, I, for various reasons, I needed to know how, how the momentum of a light is affected by moving around within, like if you put a whole bunch of light into a fiber optic line, so much so that the momentum would be it a factor. And then I was thinking like, okay, well, what about when it's going in or out of the fiber optic? When, when it's changing from one medium into another, how does that affect it? So, like, and I did some math on it, and I'm like, oh, the momentum would push the glass this way. And then I'm like, I did some math another way, and I'm like, no, actually it would pull the glass. And I'm like, wait, no, it would push, no. And I kept doing it, and I kept going back and forth and getting opposite answers. And I'm like, well, somebody must be working on this. And I found out this is called the Abraham-Minkowski paradox. And it's a thing that scientists have been working on for a really frickin' long time. <laughs> And they don't have a clear answer to. And there was recently an experiment where they, where they shot some light into a fluid to see if it would make a dip or make a rise. And it depends on how you're observing it. And it goes all the way down to the quantum level. And I'm like, oh, this is just bull crap. All I want to know is I'm just writing a science fiction novel. So are there any other things that science hasn't figured out that it would make your job easier? No, we easier pretty much got it? it down now. No, I mean, for you. <laughs> we got it covered close the lab. No, like <laughs> any other things that you've run into that you hope they can solve so that you can just Google the answers instead of... Uh... Well, so the awesome thing about being a, a writer is that I don't have to deal with the, the hardest parts of science. I just have to work the theoretical. So that step one of 700,000 for them is all I have to do. It's like, hey, what if this and this, would that lead to that? They have to spend years and a bunch of grant money like proving it and finding out. Like, I just say, like, yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> and my story is going to go that way. And could you actually take advantage of that in a functional, economically feasible way? Yes. Yes, they can. There are smart people working on it. They'll smart people it work on this. People work on it, and then it's out there. I remember one time. So how many of you have watched a TV show called How It's Made? 
Yeah, it's really popular. It's awesome, right? And I was watching a How It's Made. So 25 years as a software engineer, I watched a, a How It's Made. And usually it's about industrial mass production processes. But this one was an episode on How It's Made, a video game. And I'm like, oh, I was in the video game industry for quite a while. I was one of the programmers on Warcraft 2. I was, you know, I, I, I'm like, oh, this should be interesting. The whole thing, or like five, it was like a seven-minute segment or something like that. The whole thing was talking about the project managers, the designers, the artists, the 3D artists, the game designers, and everything like that. And then at the very, very end, programmers add menus and other aspects. That's kind of like what I do to the scientists in my books. I just say, scientists did some stuff, and now we have this. All I try to do is say, like, you cannot prove that what's happening in my books is physically impossible. So I'm going to paraphrase something that you said, and then you can correct me and say it better. <laughs> How about that? We were talking earlier, and you said every scientific idea starts off as science fiction. What I meant by that was... Before a piece of scientific progress is made, it is first envisioned in the mind of a scientist. I don't mean that to say, like, oh, science fiction drives our society forward. No. <laughs> I mean that, like, it was fiction in the mind of a scientist. It was science and fiction. And then they made it science fact. And that, that's pretty cool. I mean, everything starts with imagination. Everything from art to science to, I don't know, sports. It, you name it. Everything starts with, like, a hypothetical scenario. I think that's what makes us distinctly human is the ability to run hypothetical scenarios in our minds. Even the other higher primates don't do that. Now, you, you guys know, here, let me bring everybody down and sad. You know, uh, Coco the gorilla died this week. She knew sign language, and they would often speak to her, and she had a very good vocabulary, and they could communicate with her in a lot of ways. And if you asked her, like, hey, why did you do that? She'd be like, oh, I wanted the thing, whatever. She understood the concept of when you asked her why. But in her entire life, and she lived to be about 40-something, uh, in her entire life, she never once asked why anything. And so they think that just that concept of why is a distinct, unique thing to human only. Not all primates, not any, just us. And that why leads you to hypothetical thinking and hypothetical scenarios. I know I've really kind of wandered off the path here, but I'm just saying that like that is the basis of like all progress is that moment where you're daydreaming about something. You just heard our interview with Andy Weir, recorded live at Argonne National Lab. Thank you to Argonne National Lab and to the scientists who participated in that talk. <laughs> Thanks also to ISTE, the International Society of Technology and Education, for helping us to bring Andy Weir to Chicago. So Kristen, there are a lot of great moments, I think, in that interview. What, what were some of the things that really stood out to you? For me, I think some of the big messages were when he talked about failure and overcoming failure and how writing is like productive struggle. A lot of times in the work that we do when we're working with students, learning is in that productive struggle and failure, you've got to learn how to move past it. You heard that message with him from both his work as software engineer and his work as a writer. I loved it when he said, the more you do something, the less you suck. You know, you fail, you practice, you get better. And that failure is not the end of something, but you keep moving forward. You just have to keep working hard. That's, how, that's what makes you successful. And I think that's a message that we try to incorporate into a lot of the activities we do, whether it's with students or teachers or community. That's something that's great to remember for adults. It's not just a lesson for students. You know, you look at Andy Weir's 
rise to success in publishing. You know, it took years of failing. It took several failed novels. And it was that idea of persistence. I'm going to work on this because I want to work on it and I'm not going to give up. And I I really like that about his story. Well, and you see that in his stories, too. It's his personal story and what his characters go through. It's not easy for them to succeed in these stories. <laughs> <laughs> Success comes very hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> When we started um, talking about future telling, I thought that was he had some really good things to say about that. I like that idea of all science starting from that moment of, of asking why, that point of curiosity and creativity. One of my favorite quotes from the talk was the idea of this things coming out of a hypothetical scenario that you're telling yourself. You know, the basis of all progress is the moment when you're daydreaming about something when you let your mind wander and, and just explore possibilities. But the real progress comes in writing and in science when you sit down and do the work to make those things happen. The idea that everything starts with imagination, whether it's science, whether it's storytelling, whether it's innovation. We need a t-shirt that says that. We do. <laughs> I also liked kind of connecting those two ideas that some of the best science discoveries came from failures. And it's thinking about failure in a different way, that failure might just be the universe sending you in the right direction. <laughs> There's another good t-shirt. Failure is the universe sending you in the right in direction. In the right direction. Kristen Brandison. Yes. I think we need a t-shirt line. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our guests, Dr. Joe Magliano and Andy Weir. And thanks again to Argonne National Laboratory, the International Society for Technology in Education, and Random House for making this interview with Andy Weir possible. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to more information. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll get that t-shirt line off the... Uh, <laughs> Off the ground T-shirts coming soon. That's right. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.